Welcome to episode 598 of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, two pioneering feminist artists. First up, Faye Heavy Shield. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis is presenting Faye Heavy Shield Confluences, a career spanning presentation of Heavy Shield's work that includes drawings, sculptures, and installations, as well as two commissions that engage the landscapes and histories of the St. Louis region. Heavy Shield's spare, often minimal vocabulary and use of modest materials often addresses land, traditional Kainai stories, and Heavy Shield's own experiences in the residential school system established by the Canadian government in what is now Alberta. The exhibition, which was curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, will be on view through August 6th. Member of the Kainai Blood Nation, part of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Heavy Shield lives and works in the foothills of southern Alberta. On the second segment, Glenn Phillips joins me to discuss Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be. But first, Faye Heavyshield, after the break. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Closing on April 23rd, don't miss Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today, at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Named a must-see show by Art Forum, Forecast Form uses the concept of weather and its constantly changing forms as a metaphor to analyze artistic practices connected to the Caribbean, understanding the region as a bellwether for our rapidly shifting times. Plan your visit to see Forecast Form Art in the Caribbean Diaspora 1990s to today by going to mcachicago.org. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. And we're back. Faye Heavyshield, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Land, history, color, and Native North American history and heritage are core elements that you make fundamental to, to pretty much every work in the show. And I think one of the strengths of the work is that you build connections between past and present in, in darn near every individual artwork. 
And so I wanted to maybe start there by talking about one of the works that you've made for the show as a site-specific commission called Honor Cahokia. How does that work bridge past and present? In my practice, what I've, I guess, found early on was that art is the one, well, maybe it's not the only place, but it's the one place where past and present can coexist. You're able to, I guess, acknowledge both as coexisting. And for me, Cahokia, that was my first visit there a year ago. And that's the sense I got of that place was that it's not really, for me, it's, it, we can't say it's it's the past because I believe that Cahokia still exists, even though that, you know, that maybe that population or people are not still living there. But that trace is is so strong that it makes itself known in the present. And that's what really helped me to, I guess, acknowledge that to articulate, which I guess I'm not doing very well right now, but just to articulate my my feeling when I was there, when I was walking through, you know, right away, it it just sets off for me, you know, the imagined life that was there. And for me, that's that's as good as, you know, the past being the present still. That's a really interesting construction, because I think in the United States, we have a very hard time, including in our present politics, balancing past and present and reckoning with, let alone appreciating the complications therein. And I think the physical geography around St. Louis is like (laughs) a perfect illustration of what you were talking about both in terms of natural forces, the rivers, and how the United States has, you know, remade and rerouted those rivers. I mean, everything you just said touches on both earlier histories of that region and present histories of that region. One of the things Honor Cahokia does, and actually that a lot of your work does that interests me a lot, is it challenges traditional European-American art historical constructions of minimalism and post-minimalism, all of which feel increasingly tired, and their origins and addresses. When you make a work such as Honor Cahokia or an untitled 1992 work that's in the show that is a tall, narrow, cone-shaped sculpture that references a teepee form, when you make works like that, are you interested in, you know, making an artwork kind of an eyebrow-raising bit of revisionism in using forms and methods that might be familiar within a European-American tradition, but that hold it, hold those forms apart from that tradition? I don't know that there's an intent at the, you know, at the start of, you know, of a concept that this is how it's going to be. It It does take a lot of thought and i think when you when you spoke about how you know history has been presented even not just the history of a people but also like traditions in art i i think that it's maybe has a lot to do with language the language that and you know that language that's used or the english language it really cements a concept 
and it cements through writing. It'll make maybe part of a civilization. Okay, now now that's history because we wrote about it and now turned the page and it's it's done. Whereas for myself, my first language is not English. And so and that gives me sort of a I guess a detour that I can that I have used to develop my own vocabulary in in making art so that you know usually a word in English that will have a a certain concrete connotation or definition it's not really something that it's something I can sidestep I don't know if that makes sense it does and so with with people I mean especially with with Cahokia I didn't need to read any signage. I mean, we did, you know, we had a very knowledgeable guide that took us through. But for me, it was more sensate, you know, to it, it was just wide open to to imagine the life there because the traces were still there. And so the language there, I guess, in a sense, would have been the mounds themselves. And not just the mounds, but the boro pits. So that's a physical, that's like real communication, I guess. It's it's not written down, it's it's the earth being moved. And so it's I guess the approach to materials for me, that's what's really worked, is to not pay so much attention to a definition that's been set in place by by words by theories, just those things that sort of, I guess, are guides or signs to follow. I think a work that kind of follows in in line of what you just said is a 1992 sculpture called Fort Belly. And it's a sculpture that recalls the shape of a rounded domed building or a breast or an earthen mound, which is to say... You know, the form is familiar, but it's still ambiguous. Were you interested in a form that might be common both within the land and within the body? Oh, for sure. Because I I, I feel, I think I have, I guess, communicated that in more than one work, is that the body is land and the land is body there's there's really i mean we're in different forms but we're so connected physically that it's quite easy to transpose one over the other or i don't know if transposing over is the right word but like um transmission i guess of those two and that ends up being it could be it could be a mound or it could be you know a pregnant belly that work, as with much of my work, it's it's influenced by by the land where I grew up. And so in southern Alberta, along the river bottoms, they have coolies. And coolies are very, for me, a soothing shape. They're just sort of rolling hills that kind of taper down toward the river. To me, I always thought of them as almost like a maternal nurturing form very comforting the color of that artwork is also kind of a 
I don't know, I was going to say a neutral accrue, but then I realized that I know the word accrue from crossword puzzles and I'm not really sure what color it is. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like a, <laughs> I think it's like a beige-ish, nude-ish, I think, I think it's a word for a color that we can't come up with another word for, but, <laughs> but, but Fort, Bill, Fort Belly is, is of colors that both recall bodies and, and say the color of sand. And, uh, and a lot of your work is made of or, 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 or uses colors that are, are really referential. And, and, and one of those is the other site-specific commission you've made for this show, and it's called Ionituton. Did I get that close? Yeah. Ionituton. Ionituton. Yeah. And it addresses modern-day St. Louis's site as being where the Missouri and Mississippi rivers meet, which, just side note, it had never occurred to me how little art addresses that confluence. It's, in some ways, the most important waterway confluence in the United States. And you'd think that, given how important the confluence of those two rivers are to America's imperial history— and uh, to, to, you know, modern American commerce and the economy that artists would have noticed, but um, artists have mostly left it alone. So I'm kind of stunned by that. Anyway, so there's, <laughs> there's land and there's history and there's color at the heart of that work, which is made up of hundreds of blues. And to talk about this one, let's start with how you've built up over, over the course of a decade or so a huge photographic archive of North American rivers. What about rivers interested you? Well, they've always been in in my environment growing up. And so they were they were always there. And just like the land itself, you know, it's it's like these arteries or these veins running through this body that's through this land. I think the other thing that really attracted me when I first started taking these images of rivers was that, again, there is that there can be both a stillness, like a constant, but change in the same in the same entity. And to me, that's what I think really intrigues me is that, you know, a river, you can call it a river, but it's never the same just because of the flow of that river. And I have, I have taken a lot of images, but then that's another part of my practice that I, I have also thousands of images of uh, dried grass. Uh, so I'm kind of, kind of weird that way. <laughs> I, I love that idea. What, so what from the knowledge, mindful that knowledge can be pictorial as well as other things, what from that knowledge you've built up about rivers was particularly applicable to this address of the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers? I had never seen either of those rivers. And so I I had a sense that they're, you know, that they would figure prominently in in whatever whatever came to me to to make art out of. So a lot of things started occurring especially during my visit, I didn't want to do too much like looking at maps or things like that. I didn't want anything that would maybe predetermine, you know, what was going to end up there. So a lot of it was 
of course, the, the space at the Pulitzer, the proximity to the pool, the lengths, just the space, the physical space itself. But then when we when we drove out to the confluence, I noticed that we didn't see the river right away. We didn't see, I had no sense of where the river was. It was pointed out to me, but it was hidden by um, like a railroad track. And, and so for such vital rivers, river systems, that there was no physical or visual sense of it as we drove there. So that was that was the other thing that went into, you know, the decision to frame it in this aluminum frame. So that was sort of a reference to to that, that like there's this huge body of water flowing these two rivers, but they're not really in in the conscience of, you know, the people living along the river. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've never lived anywhere in my life where there was less local respect for two major waterways. I mean, it's like St. Louis historically has acknowledged they're there and has chosen to like turn its back to them. It's really weird. It's it's not yeah. the way other oh, no. cities and other regions treat their life-giving rivers. <laughs> no, I, that's what I noticed because where I'm from in, in Alberta, there's well, three places that I, I know for sure, like in one is like a, a city, Edmonton, that ha, that's a river valley city. And then Calgary, that's another, you know, they you're really aware of the rivers because like you said, you know, like you mentioned before, rivers, they they always meant the meeting place. And that's how these cities grew or these populations settled there then closer to home in along the old man river you know it's people are you either drive across it or you know there's some sort of way of the river making itself known to the people that live there but when we got to the confluence it was like driving that little little roadway and then we took a little path and then you come to this place and, you know, there's a plaque that speaks of it, but it was just a really, it was amazing to me to stand, you know, on the shore of where those rivers met. And it seemed almost like it was, um, you know, that I was being made privy to a secret, big secret, which was really special. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who uh, thinks that way about St. Louis and its rivers. <laughs> <laughs> the last work I want to talk about is a work called The Red Line, which you made in 2021. And it's a, you know, a line of, of beads and cord. The color is red. And, and it's a work addressing and engaging COVID and the pandemic years. And I think that we're kind of just beginning to see artworks informed by or addressing covid and the pandemic experience showing up in art museums, in galleries. And so I guess maybe as a result of that, I haven't talked to a whole lot of artists about making work about those years and that experience. So forgive the prosaicness of this question, but did you sit down and think to yourself, I want to make something that represents 
the COVID years and that experience? Or does it just become something you do in a more organic way? Well, the the idea had been there before because I have done some beadwork, but not in the you know in the fashion that a lot of beadwork is done, where it's very precise and you know it's designed. It's you wear it; it's beautiful. For me, it's it it was something that I wanted to do. Was it was uh, maybe. Just, I guess, along the same line of the the repetition that I use in a lot of the work, and I guess just simple, a simple matter of, you know, picking up beads, winding them around a cord, tacking them. But I hadn't yet, until COVID was already in place, and so COVID, the idea was there beforehand, but COVID informed it so much because of the well, the isolation that everyone was forced into. And when I would work on it, it was, a, in a sense, it was keeping me company because, to, you know, as everybody went through, you know, you, you were only allowed a couple of people into your home, you know, for the sake of your health, their health. And really working on that is what, I guess, in a sense, took the place of that relation those relationships or those conversations because yeah you would it wasn't just a matter of like reminiscing but you would also like think ahead to just to the future and when you would see people again when you could enjoy your family again laugh you know all the things that were there before COVID eat together and as I as you know the beads were being added it it was there was more introspection i guess to thinking about i don't know you know the the um, that term rabbit hole <laughs> that you know you you can start beading you know at eight o'clock in the morning and half an hour later you're thinking about i don't know just something so so far from where you are and, and so different. So I guess in a way it was a vehicle for me to well to occupy my mind, my hands and and think of family, of lineage, of drawing. Did you realize that the work was about COVID and the isolations of the pandemic as you were making it? Or is all of this kind of what you've come to realize in hindsight? Well, it wasn't it wasn't like a headliner in that sense, but it became part of the work because that was what that was the place I was in as I was making it. You know, I think it would have been different if well my thoughts about it, maybe the maybe the shape or it would still be that way, but it wouldn't have this this sense of COVID and isolation. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have been infused by me into the work. And so a lot of what was taking place during COVID, like even the fear, you know, like it's not written out in the work, but I think just the fact that it was made during COVID and, you know, you, you everybody just went day to day uh, and you made it to the next day. And so in that sense too, it was, uh, it was about COVID. Well, just like the other works, I mean, it's, it's what informs it. 
but it's not really like a singular, oh, this is what it's about. Right, right. I think we are, as art historians and critics, much, much closer to the beginning of understanding artistic practice and address of COVID than we are to understanding it. You know, I think we're just beginning to think about, maybe, maybe we're now safe enough to think about what that period meant for artists and their practices, and I guess for us too, for critics and historians and, and our practices. Faye Heavyshield, thank you very much. Thank you. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art from 1969 to the present, including more than 60 works by 50 artists. Artists including Corey Archangel, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Hito Sterl, and Hassan Alahi examine screen culture through a broad range of media, such as paintings, sculpture, video games, digital art, augmented reality, and video. Screens affect nearly every aspect of life today. Their pervasiveness has bred a 24-7 breaking news cycle, the looming corporate-sponsored virtual reality metaverse, unlimited accessibility and content, and an ease in how ideas and images are distributed, undoubtedly shaping culture in profound ways. The exhibition starts in 1969, the year of the televised Apollo moon landing and the launch of the internet's prototype ARPANET, and continues through the present. I'll be your mirror, art, and the digital screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through April 30th. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for art of the Islamic worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego, Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now through August 2023, See Rosas's first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Glenn Phillips joins me to discuss Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be a presentation of work from the first 50 years, so from roughly 1931 to 1981, of Barbara T. Smith's career. Phillips co-curated the exhibition with Pietro Regolo. It's on view at the Getty Research Institute in L.A. through July 16th. Smith is a pioneering second-wave feminist artist whose work addressed the seemingly limited options available to women from Smith's class and racial background. The GRI worked with Smith to present the exhibition in her own voice, which coincides with the Getty's publication of Smith's memoir, The Way to Be a Memoir. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for $24 to $46. We will have links on manpodcast.com. Glenn Phillips, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm so happy to be here. Before we talk about Barbara T. Smith's work, 
Why did you all hit upon the idea of presenting the exhibition in the first person? And that first person, that voice, of course, being Smith's. Well, you know, Barbara started writing her memoir in 1978 and, and, you know, kept writing on it for decades and decades and finally finished it during the pandemic. And, you know, the, the memoir covers the first half of her life up to about age 50. And then she spent the second half of her life writing the first half. And, you know, it's been such a ongoing thing for Barbara. And even when you look in her archive, you see all of these early drafts going through there. And so it just felt that this was the way to tell her story. And I think if you read Barbara's memoir, which which we've just published at the Getty, so much of that story is her trying to explain herself and people ignoring her. You know, I, I just felt like she doesn't need me or anyone else at the Getty to explain her work. She can do that just fine herself. And maybe it's about time for that. Accordingly, I think perhaps instead of starting in a more usual place, like with the beginning of someone's, in this case, Smith's professional career, the show at the GRI includes work that goes all the way back to the 1940s. And of course, Smith was born in 1931. So, you know, listener, do the math. Why did you start so early? You know, I think we actually have some material from the 30s because I, 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 we, we have footage of her fourth birthday party. <laughs> well, you know, Barbara has an interesting life story because she did not really move into being an avant-garde artist until she was in her mid-30s. And that, that was a huge break for her that led to the breakup of the, her family and the loss of custody of her children and the type of life that she moved into as a conceptual artist, clashes quite a lot with the type of life that she was born into. And we wanted to show that clash in a sense. And so in order to do that, you know, in her archive, there are really amazing childhood and early adult materials that she kept. You know, we wanted, we wanted to show it. And so why her fourth birthday party? So you can see the home that she was in. You can see what, what, her friends and family friends look like. And I guess by this, I mean a little bit of a portrait of class. You know, we have some of her school homework, which is, first of all, visually amazing, but but also, also illustrative. She had this very gendered education. One of her classes was flower arrangement. And, you know, she would have to make flower arrangements and then draw them. And a, another one of her classes was interior decorating. And we just pulled out a few little sheets, but there are these giant binders. Like this was a huge class. And basically, you know, the, the assumption is that you are decorating your home for your new husband that you will have very soon. In fact, that was what happened to her. She was married already in college. She was living in the married dorms. She was you know, pregnant with her first child by the time she graduated and went on to have three children. She was an art major in college, but I think for you know a dozen years or so after graduating, her primary artistic output was the yearly Christmas card that she would design for the family. So we have all of these things from that period, and we designed this sort of case. Our curatorial team went around to little history museums and historical societies. We were thinking, you know, if Barbara had never become an artist, then the only place you would ever see her work would be in a historical society. 
And they have their own curatorial methodology of how they display things. So we sort of began the exhibition with this case that you might more likely see in a place like that. And we filled it with this, with this early life material. And it's, it's a small section of the show, but, but maybe one of my favorite sections because it's, it's really fun to get into this stuff. And it's also – I don't know that it's relatable to you know, see someone's flower arranging homework, but it, it's relatable to see school assignments and to see things that is, are, is made by a young person rather than you know, a master artist. And it certainly sets up the break and the radicalism and, and the participation in the avant-garde that begins around 1965 with Smith's seven so-called black glass paintings, one of which I think is in the show. Yes. So we have a black glass painting in the show, but it's actually the last thing you see rather yes. than the first thing. So yes. we sort of wanted to bring bring the exhibition full circle in a way. But right after she was making the black glass paintings is, is when she began experimenting with the Xerox machine. So let me jump let me let me jump in there. So the first mature body of work in the show is what are known as these Xerox works. The earliest of them dates to about 66-ish. They are literally Xerox copies made from the successor to the Xerox 914, a copier that was introduced by the Haloid Xerox company in 1959. So what are those works and how should we understand them within the context of printmaking practice? Well, those works are actually among the very first artworks in the world to be used to be produced using xerography. 1966 is quite early. There were only the tiniest number of artists who were experimenting with with this technology seriously before that and Barbara went in depth to this, you know, really incredible degree. She and her husband were living in this beautiful green and green home in Pasadena, which you know, just just lovely, highly decorative living environment. And and Barbara leased a Xerox machine and installed it in the middle of her dining room, which which in a way could not be a more symbolic gesture for where she was headed, you know, because here you, here you have a person who's been her, her entire upbringing was about becoming the perfect hostess, right? And and instead, she installs this giant machine in the middle of the dining room, and it truly is a giant machine. And and to show that, we actually found one, and we have it on display in the exhibition. So she made so many different types of work with the Xerox machine, and a core of that work was a series of unique books that she called coffins, and and that name has two meanings. The first meaning is, you know, her father was a very prominent funeral home director and had played, I think she had a very close relationship with her father, but he also was a little bit controlling, particularly about who she was allowed to date and who she was encouraged to marry. And then, you know, that marriage itself was on the rocks. And and so this was simultaneously, you know, referencing her, her father and the world that she grew up in, but also the death of her marriage and separation of her family. And in these books, you just see this explosion of creativity. I mean, she was doing everything you could imagine with the Xerox machine. I mean, she was, you know, Xeroxing her own body in, in every, you know, provocative and non-provocative way that you can think. But she also was, she was Xeroxing so many different 
objects. She was Xeroxing photographs of herself and her children. She hired the photographer Jerry McMillan to do this rather provocative nude photo shoot with her. She was photographed or she was Xeroxing things like rice, things like flour. She Xeroxed her breath sort of clouding the, the surface of the machine. She was experimenting with, with different colors of paper, but also different sorts of material. She was Xeroxing on clear acetate sheets. So these books that she was binding in all these different ways, each one is different than, than the next. They're all this, this sort of amazing realm of experimentation, including in the types of bindings. They're, they're bound in all different ways. Some of them are certainly sort of large accordion-folded books. Some of them are much smaller. Anything that could be done with the Xerox, she did it. And, and she was great at embracing the flaws of the machine. I think the machines at this time, you, know, you really need to clean them. They could get clogged. And, and uh, you know, when they've not had their maintenance, then you get these, you know, these imperfections in the image. You start seeing stripes. You start seeing you know, clumps of, of the, the sort of pigment. And she embraced that because, of course, it's a much more beautiful or interesting image when it's done that way. One of the things that we were shocked by when we received our Xerox machine that's on loan is it has a little a compartment in it and there's a fire extinguisher in there. And apparently these machines were very prone <laughs> to catch on fire, particularly if they didn't have perfect maintenance. And when we showed that to Barbara, she was like, oh, mine didn't have that. I just had to keep a blanket nearby because it would, you know, at any moment it might burst into flames. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yikes. I should note that uh, the place you found your Xerox machine is, is a place called the Printing Museum uh, that's in Houston, Texas. That's correct. How might we understand the impact that Smith's Xerox works had on, on printmaking and on artists' books in and around the 60s and 70s? Well, in and around the 60s and 70s, it had no impact whatsoever because no one paid any attention to anything that Barbara was doing. But now she is absolutely seen as a pioneer in the development of Xerox art. And she really needs to be seen as a pioneer in technology-based art making. I think the, the first section of her career was so focused on art and technology, and it was an ongoing interest. And, and she's almost never been acknowledged in that history either, although there's an exhibition at the L.A. County Museum right now that, that kind of looks into this, and her work is included there. Coded is the name of that exhibition. The next couple groups of works that we're going to talk about are, are a million miles away from working on a copier in a living room because they don't just involve a person and a machine. They involve lots of people in lots of places coming together in ways that it would have been completely anathema to mid-1960s Pasadena. Ha ha. How did Smith get from working alone to creating Capro-esque happenings, if you will? Barbara Smith moved into these collaborative performance experiments in a few different ways. I think that, you know, she she began attending sort of performance workshops that put her in touch with people. And so some of her very first performances, you know, could have happened that way. But I think that, you know, one of the really 
formative things for her was was when at, at the age of 38, she enrolled in the new MFA program at UC Irvine, which became really one of the most radical programs around at that time. And uh, among her cohort of, of fellow students were Chris Burden, Nancy Buchanan, Marsha Hafif, kind of an amazing set of artists. And I think at that point, you know, between the students and the teachers who were there, she was in this utterly other world where any anything you wanted to experiment with could happen. One of those experiments comes in around 1968, and it's an interactive installation that was part sculpture, part happening, and an innovative use of contemporary materials to boot. It's called Field Piece, and it's now pretty legendary. Surviving elements from it are in the collection of the Hammer Museum and in your show. Connie Lou Allen, who passed away a year ago this month, described it as being, quote, resin blades of grass, you know, six or eight feet high, that would light up when triggered by viewers' feet, thus illuminating the field. How, how do you think of it and its significance, and how do you present it here? So that's, that's an accurate description, except that the blades are about 10 feet high. Oh, they're even taller than that. Uh, they're, they're, they're even taller than that. And, and you know, the, the idea came about, Barbara, she just had this vision of, of what if there was a field of grass that was so tall we could wander through it and, and get lost. And, and then she started making it. So she started on it around 1968, but she was working on it for several years. So I, I think most of its display would have been around 1971, maybe even 72. It was an art and technology-based piece. I mean, the, you know, these, these blades were on a platform that had pressure sensors that would, you know, as you walked through the piece, it, it would illuminate. Originally, there were 180 of these blades, so it, it did make you know quite a large environment. It was massively expensive to do. She she really spent her entire divorce settlement, which could have kept her you know comfortable for quite a long time, and instead she wound up investing it all into this piece, which then. You know, the the last time it was displayed in full, it was almost entirely destroyed. It was exhibited at the Long Beach Museum of Art, and the, the museum convinced her to let it be displayed outside, outdoors, and then it was vandalized and, and mostly smashed. So from the original 180 blades, there are 15 that remain, thankfully, and that are in the collection of the Hammer Museum. You can't walk through it. It, well, you're not allowed to walk through it anymore. If if you were allowed, it, you know the pieces would still illuminate the way that they did originally. But you know they're very fragile, so people are not allowed to walk through it anymore. But there's a program, so that the, it sort of randomly illuminates every 15 minutes. It'll come on for about five minutes. And I'm I'm very grateful to the Hammer Museum because they allowed us to take a great liberty with this piece, which is that we installed mirrors behind it. And the, the 15 blades that are left are on a little bit of an offset, so they're not really a full rectangle. There's a little bit of a zigzag. And so we designed this zigzag mirror that goes behind it, and it actually gives the impression that the piece is three to four times larger than it actually is. So for every blade that you see, it's, every blade is reflected three more times in the mirrors. And so you get this illusion that sort of helps you imagine the original scale of the piece. And you can also see yourself standing inside of it because you're in reflection as well. And so it, it, it gives this chance 
you know, to, to give, give people a hint of what the piece originally might have looked like. The year after Smith started Field Peace, she presented her first uh, performance slash happening. It was titled Ritual Meal. The GRI has uploaded a video of it from the Barbara T. Smith papers onto YouTube, has made a whole playlist of digitized video from the Smith papers and, and, and put it on YouTube. We'll have both a link to the playlist and a few of the individual videos, which are amazing, up on the show page on manpodcast.com. It's just a spectacularly awesome, weird, unedited, raw, holy cow, what a time and place level stuff. So what was Ritual Meal and how have you been able to present it? Well, maybe as you describe how you've been able to present it and, and, and what the thing is, it'll become obvious why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> so Ritual Meal was was Barbara's, what I would call her first mature performance, the first performance piece that, that really is important in her narrative. And it's a piece that was presented at the home of Stanley and Elise Grinstein, two of the founders of the print workshop Gemini GEL. It's a funny detail because, you know, Barbara first went to the Xerox machine because she tried to make a print at Gemini and they kind of turned her away because they didn't know who she was. And then here, just a couple years later, she's now doing her performance, you know, in, in their dining room. So it shows how fast she did sort of get at least some people's attention. But this was a five-hour-long dinner, and the, the guests who came, they were all people in the art world, but uh, they didn't know what they were coming into. And it was this dinner that was really designed to make you feel profoundly uncomfortable. There were 16 people there, and, and the table, the place setting, uh, instead of you know normal dining implements, it, it was medical instruments. So you know, in, instead of a, a spoon or a fork, you'd have a forceps. There were, you know, burners on, on the table. It, it went through this series of courses. One of them, you know, they, they brought around raw chicken livers that you'd have to take with your forceps and then cook it in boiling wine. Or one of the courses was these purees of fruit that were served in IV bottles. They didn't have IV bags at that time. It was glass bottles. And these attendants would sort of roll them around and each person would suck, suck it through the tube. Being projected on the wall was footage of an open heart surgery being performed and being projected on the ceiling was a slideshow of images of galaxies, like, like space imagery. And then there was another projection showing like body systems, like anatomical systems. And all of this, you know, would would maybe believe you feel that, that this ritual was a, that you were maybe consuming a body, maybe consuming a human body that that was never, you know, really implied exactly. And I think for me, and, and this is sort of one of the either advantages of, or side effects of taking this first person memoir based approach to a show, I think when you know, when, when you have Barbara's own life story height of, you know, at, at the top of your mind, again, this is a person who the, the whole, you know, first part of her life was designed around becoming the perfect hostess. And then her first major performance is, is sort of designing this nightmare dinner that's supposed to make everyone feel profoundly uncomfortable. And I think thinking through this, it, it also made the, the curators, the show is co-curated by Pietro Rigolo at, at the GRI. It, it made both of us think about this notion of hospitality running through everything. You know, this was one of her first performances. She really hadn't learned 
the best documentation to make at that point. And there's very, very little documentation of this piece, yet it's so important to the narrative. And so we just made the decision, you know what, let's just build the table. Let's just make the table, which we did. We we made this table setting for 16, and we call it a visualization of Ritual Meal. It's not really an artwork, and it's not even fully accurate because we took all five hours of courses, and we condensed that into one table setting. So you, you see every implement that was used over the course, but, but they may not have been there all at the same time, or they would have been there in different combinations. But I think as I was thinking more about Barbara's story, and this and this would be the first of many sort of you know dinner-based performances that she would do, I just thought we, we have to have a dinner table in the middle of this show to sort of represent this really important side of Barbara's work. One of the most famous works of 1970s feminist art is Judy Chicago's Dinner Party. Chicago, you know, was an Angelino. Do you think that Dinner Party descends from these meal and food-based works and happenings that Smith was presenting? Well, I think that, you know, I, I think there's a lineage there. I don't know how much Judy would have known about the ritual meal performance, although she absolutely knew Barbara. So it may have been it may have been discussed. I think that, you know, when you're when you're looking at the emergence of feminist artists in Los Angeles or, or anywhere, really, part of what they really examine are these roles and expectations of women. And, you know, most of them would have had a life experience that, you know, began with them being you know, encouraged very strongly to conform to those roles. And, and so I think this notion of dinner, communal activities, even hospitality, was, was almost undergirding to so many artists' work at that time. You know, Barbara certainly among them. Including men, for that matter, like Alan Ruppersberg. Absolutely. A key element of a lot of Smith's work, you know, especially in the late 60s and 70s, was the relations between people and the social hierarchies amongst them. And she always works to destabilize it. So for example, in Field Peace, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the earliest installations of Field Peace, people were encouraged to walk through it nude or maybe even required to. People were always encouraged to go through it nude. They weren't required, but but they they were absolutely encouraged. And she really felt that... Clothes are one of the ways that you can signify class, for instance. And and she liked this notion of kind of stripping that away and, and letting us all just be people without these other signifiers on our bodies. So I'm interested in how she wasn't only briefly, say in the year or two after her divorce or around her divorce, interested in challenging social hierarchies and undermining them, but but she stays there for a really long time. What do you think sustained her interest in in that as a, a theme or subject? Well, here again, I think it, it's it's this, you know, first 34 or five years of her life or so where, you know, the way that people signal class and upbringing and stature and status and, you know, visually with their bodies and with their behaviors and then you know, not wanting to be in that life anymore. And so you see this whole series of works where Barbara tries to, to challenge the, the visual body 
and all of the sort of unspoken ways that, that we use dress and manner to signal things like this. The title piece for the show and for Barbara's memoir is a piece called The Way to Be, which is a durational performance that she made while traveling from San Francisco to Seattle. And she wore this sort of odd outfit that could maybe look vaguely medical or it could vaguely look, you know, like a like a waiter's jacket. And she painted her face one side of it white and the other side red. And she was doing this to make herself unreadable as we, like you don't know what a person dressed like this might what their purpose might be. And then proceeded to go to all these places doing very social things and putting herself, you know, directly engaging with people directly, but refusing to speak. And and so just to become this blank person with with nothing really readable on them and then see how people react. And of course they react by being profoundly uncomfortable. And I think it was destabilizing for Barbara, but very destabilizing for the people that she was interacting with. And, and so in a way, she's trying to take the self back to almost this zero point and then build you know, yourself forward from there. We mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that you closed the exhibition with one of Smith's seven black paintings. Why did you want to end the show that way? So Barbara's memoir, you know, she started writing the memoir in 1978. In 1981, she turned 50 years old and and she did this incredible performance that kind of symbolized and celebrated that. And then at that point, you know, she felt that art had allowed her to overcome all of the major problems that had been present and challenging her in the first half of her life and that she was then fully mature person that can go on to make other types of artworks. And so in 1981, she decided that her memoir would stop at, at age 50. And so we decided to have the show stop at age 50 as well. But then there's an awkwardness to that because Barbara did not stop making art. I mean, she was very, very active as an artist, you know, the whole time and and still is an artist. And so we wanted to just add a little final section to acknowledge that. And so we we're combining two bodies of work. We have uh, one of her black glass paintings and then we have a recent series of prints that she made called signifiers where and that is it's showing her hands today on a you know sort of high res scanner. So going back to the early Xerox pieces. Of course, the black glass paintings, you know, they're these black paintings with each one has a very simple image in it that Barbara says is not really important. What's important is that she puts a layer of glass and it then turns the painting into a mirror so that you really see yourself. And so we wanted this sort of final moment where you you kind of turn the corner in the show and then you see yourself standing there in this painting and then and then around you are are Barbara's, you know, hands at a pretty large scale. So it's a moment of reflection sort of for everyone, but it's it's kind of a moment to look back to the beginning and then look forward to what, what Barbara would do later. The signifier works are from 2016. Smith, I think I mentioned earlier, was born in 1931. She's 92. She turns 92 in July. Oh, 92 in July. Yeah. Glenn Phillips, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. 
Thanks for listening.